Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Hello there and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and I'm joined as always by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, man? We've got three really competitive conference semifinals. We thought the Grizzlies without Jaw had a chance to make it 4-2-2 series, but compelling stuff nonetheless in the second round. We've got an MVP, well, a reported, but technically we know it. It's legit. Woj reported it. MVP, back-to-back MVP, Nikola Jokic. Sacramento Kings have a head coach. There's, There's a lot going on around the NBA. Yeah, we were very close to having four 2-2 series, which would have been unbelievable, but really a devastating loss for the Morantless Grizzlies, who played their asses off in that game last night, I think led by 12 in the fourth quarter, and just couldn't score enough down the stretch, which is to be expected, but uh, we'll get into talking about that game and that series toward the end, but... We did want to make a point of talking about the series that maybe have gotten a little bit of short shrift on this pod because last week we focused almost entirely on Warriors, Grizzlies, and Celtics, Bucks. So let's start with the two series that are playing their game fives tonight. Two series that started out 2-0 with the home court teams looking like they were in full control. Obviously, in one of those series, there was a a monumental personnel change that altered the dimensions of the matchup. The other one was just, I mean, we can talk about what what changed and what has maybe swung that series. But now we're looking at two series that could go pretty much either way that are are heading into these incredibly crucial Game 5s tonight. So... I mean, did you did you have anything to say about the Jokic MVP before we get into all that? Like, we we have talked about it enough. I think we both picked him to win MVP, so I don't think either of us are going to have much to say about him winning it, other than we think it was the right call. Uh, anything to add now that it's you know as as close to being official as it could possibly be without being official yet? Uh, the only thing I'll add, and there's a short video that'll be out on Discord's YouTube page with, with similar thoughts, is is just that. Look, if you were a Sixers fan, you're a Bucks fan, and you thought it should be Embiid or Giannis, I get it. You're a fan. You're you're partial to your guy. That's the point of being a fan. I get that. What I don't really get, and it it's bothered me, and obviously I'm not the only one. I'm sure it's bothered you too. It's bothered a lot of people. Is that this somehow became like it 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 couldn't just be well. I like Joel Embiid or I like the Sixers, and I wish he would have won it. I thought it had to become this weird. More so than any MVP in recent memory that I can remember, it became this weird 
Twitter mob or whatever that just has to tear Nikola Jokic down, where more than any other MVP. No, I come can- on, that, that's that's not new, dude. Like, are okay, you kidding? It's not new. No, no, it's not new. But to this level, man, I don't remember, dude. The report that he won MVP was my entire timeline, and it wasn't just like random fans, including some media in Philly and Milwaukee, mostly Philly. You know, then obviously you've got like the the clown media like Kendrick Perkins or whatever. But still, you just like a bunch of people, you know, making the exact same joke a hundred different ways. Oh, like want to check in uh, to watch this MVP guy. What time is his second round game? Or, oh, I can't believe like they let Vorp uh, be the reason Joel Embiid didn't win MVP. Like what does Joel Embiid have to do? And that's the kind of stuff that I just thought it it was so ridiculous. I'm not saying, you know, arguing over MVP or saying this guy shouldn't have won MVP is new, but I do not remember a year where like the level of fake outrage, if you want to say, was this big. And I just think it's absolutely asinine. Again, I'm I'm not even going to hold it against you if you're just a Sixers fan or a Bucks fan. And you're like, oh, I wanted my guy to win, or you're you're partial and biased, so you think they should have won. But to create this narrative where the only reason Nikola Jokic won MVP is because his advanced stats are good, or whatever the case may be, or to use the fact that his Murrayless Porterless Nuggets lost in five to the Warriors, despite him averaging like 31, 13, and six on 64% true shooting in that series is just so ridiculous, man. Like the only reason they made the playoffs, let alone finish top six was because of him. Uh, despite the fact that his team was clearly lacking, the Nuggets finished with a better net rating with him on the court than the Sixers did with Embiid on the court or the Bucks did with Giannis on the court. It's way more than just advanced stats. He finished, yes, okay, he had the highest PR ever, which is cool, but that, that's not just why he won MVP. The, the list goes on and on. You know, a lot of people were tweeting about, you know, like, oh, they said he got better at defense, but he got subbed out in a in a crucial defensive play. And did, listen, again, first of all, this is a regular season award, and anyone who watched the NBA this season, ask Draymond Green. He even talked about it on TNT one time, I think, this year on his podcast. Knows Nikola Jokic played solid defense here and improved defensively. It did not necessarily carry over to the playoffs, but guess what? MVP is a regular season award. Just like every argument people have made to try to clown this MVP decision does not hold water. It's like either low hanging fruit or completely asinine. And I just think it's insane how much outrage there's been over an MVP, which is a deserved and it's not like we're talking about some guy that like came out of nowhere or no one could have conceived this or like there's no actual tangible arguments to make and no one can understand it like this is actually very obvious when you look at all the nut like everything and take the whole body of work from the regular season into account and anyway yeah that's it I, I didn't want to get worked up to start the pod here I didn't think I had that much to say about Jokic but that's basically it just that I don't think you had to tear him down Joel Embiid had a fantastic phenomenal season Giannis had another fantastic phenomenal season as is the best player alive but the award is who was most valuable during the regular season in question and for the second straight year that was Nikola Jokic that's it yeah I mean I agree with everything you said apart from the fact that this is some kind of a new phenomenon because I really don't think it is I mean Giannis got all of that when he won his MVPs and then didn't make it through the Eastern Conference Russ Westbrook certainly got it when he won MVP. Even Steph, man. Like when Steph unanimously won MVP for a 73-win Warriors team, when that team came up short in the playoffs, 
there was backlash saying that it was ridiculous that he could have won unanimous MVP when at the end of the day, LeBron had bested him. You know what? Like it's that that's the nature of fandom. I don't like that. It is that way. I think you should be able to give your guy credit or say that you prefer your guy without tearing the other guy down. But unfortunately, yeah, that's just not the way that fandom tends to work. So I will say, I think Joel Embiid and Giannis both had MVP caliber seasons, 1000%. Right. I would have been fine with either of those guys winning. I wouldn't, they, they wouldn't have been my pick, but I don't think they would have been undeserved if they had one. And I would hope that, you know, a Sixers fan, a Bucks fan, uh, a nomadic fan of Giannis or Embiid can still recognize that despite the fact that their guy had an MVP caliber season, Nikola Jokic did as well. And he is deserving of the MVP. And that doesn't mean that Giannis or Embiid wouldn't have been deserving. It just, in the voters' minds, in our minds, Jokic was a little bit more deserving. That's all it is. And if you want to say, hey, look, my guy's still playing in the playoffs, well, then that should be enough for you. You should be happy enough with that yeah. and not have to like claim some ownership over a regular season award that the other guy won. So let's leave that there. And why don't we just use that as a jumping off point to talk about Joel Embiid and yep. the Philadelphia 76ers who, look, this is why on our last episode, when we didn't know for sure if Embiid was going to come back and play in game three, I was stressing the importance of him coming back in game three versus game four. And the idea that if he came back and it was two, nothing, I thought the Sixers had a chance that was without knowing how good he was going to be. Once he came back, how impactful he was going to be able to be with a mask on with a fractured orbital bone, with a torn ligament in his thumb. And he, for the most part, looked like Joel Embiid, man. And I think the, you know, he he made a huge impact at both ends of the floor. I'm actually curious what you think. I would say the bigger impact has probably been on defense for Philly, but I, I really think it's completely changed how they play. I mean, their confidence level, like so many different aspects of what they're doing on offense and defense. So what has stood out to you most in terms of how that series has flipped since Embiid came back? from Miami's end or Philly's end? I mean, what's what's the thing that has stood out to you most? Uh, Philly's defense and just the amount of space Joel Embiid's sheer size covers and how much you notice that when he even goes a couple of games without playing. Like when you see the Sixers even play one or two games without him and then he comes back into the lineup and you're reminded of like, holy shit, this guy, especially when he's locked in, which I think we both agreed he took his foot off the gas a bit defensively in the regular season. But when Joel Embiid's locked in on the defensive end at that size and that ability, it is terrifying. And that's what stood out to me the most. Like there have been multiple moments uh, in both the games that were in Philly game four in particular, where, I mean, you name the heat guard, Tyler hero, Victor Oladipo, Kyle Lowry, not so much because he's not looking for a shot. We'll talk about that soon too, but like hero and Oladipo, especially where, Lanes they had in games one and two that ended with them getting to the rim in games three and four, they'd get into the paint and it would kind of look like they had a shot to get to the rim or they'd kind of do the, they do like the half Nash, you know, like the Nash who dribble under the basket and come back up. They would do it like half. They wouldn't go quite around, but still they would do it in a way where they thought when they turned around, there'd be a layup waiting for them. And instead when they turned around, Joel Embiid was waiting for them and they're either going to get their shot 
you know, blocked to shit or they just had to reset and bring it back out because they're not even going to attempt that. And that to me is what has stood out for Joel Embiid. It is heat possessions that maybe last three to five seconds longer because their first option wasn't available because Joel Embiid blew it up. It's space that wasn't there. It's attempts at the rim that, you know, forget aren't going in, aren't even there anymore. And uh, I think their offense, which, you know, already obviously did rely on some good three-point shooting, has become even more reliant on that jump shooting because they're not getting what they need inside unless it's Jimmy Butler. And the that has co- also coincided with them shooting terribly from three. So it's this kind of like combination of, well, Joel Embiid's back. We're getting less inside. We need to rely on jumpers. And our jumpers are gone, have gone cold. It's a, it's a terrible combo for Miami. And I mean... I don't know. Do you want you want to talk about some of the other stuff now, like Harden Lauer? Or you want to keep going on the Embiid stuff? Do you want to you know talk about your observations of Joel Embiid first? Yeah, I think so. You hit on the stuff defensively. Obviously, it's just more difficult for the Heat to get to the rim. And I think what the Sixers are doing also is they're really making a point of staying at home on Miami's most dangerous three point shooters. Like, yes, there's definitely some element of variance there where they they shot around 20% in both games three and four from three-point range while the Sixers basically lit it up from deep. And, you know, like regardless of who's taking the shots, you don't expect Miami to shoot that poorly every game. But it is worth noting that Jimmy Butler led the Heat in three-point attempts in game four. And they're not sending a ton of help at him. And, and like they're they're giving him switches too. Like he is able to go mismatch hunting, but yeah, they'll have Embiid back there on the back line, and that certainly makes those mismatches more survivable for them. And they want to keep those three point shooters under wraps. And if Butler cooks them inside the arc, they seem willing to live with that. And I, you know whether that's the right approach or not, I'm not entirely sure. But I just think it's crazy that. Uh, in games three and four combined, he scored 73 of Miami's 187 points. That's 39% of their points. And, you know, Jimmy obviously is doing his damnedest to carry Miami at the offensive end. But Embiid being back has just has like completely reshaped, I think, the geometry of Miami's offense. So that's where he's making the impact defensively. Offensively, I think it's also been massive because... More than anything, you know, the 1-5 pick and roll is viable for Philly again. You know, we talked about this on a previous episode, how Embiid being out and the Sixers not having any kind of replacement for him that could do any sort of meaningful damage on the back end of switches. And obviously Miami's proclivity for switching as a base pick and roll coverage, basically, was going to make that really difficult and and honestly pointless without Embiid there to even run one five pick and roll. Now Embiid's back and Embiid is very much able to feast on the back end of a switch. And that's making life 10 times easier for Harden, for Maxi, for all of the Sixers perimeter players. And there's a lot of the Sixers kind of doing what they did against the Raptors in game six, where they are finding the guy that they want involved in the Harden and bead pick and roll. It can be hero. A lot of the time it's hero. Sometimes it's Gabe Vincent. And they're just working to get that guy switched onto Harden before they run the action that they actually want to get to. And 
that's how, you know, some of the time they're getting two on the ball and B is doing a good job of slipping out and the, the heat just, they're not really equipped to deal with Embiid rolling when Adebayo is like out, you know, 25 feet from the basket. And once upon a time, Kyle Lowry was like one of the best low man guard defenders in the league. But I'm not sure he's up to that challenge at this stage of his career, even when he's healthy, which he clearly is not. So, you know, I, I think Harden going off in the last game, a lot of it was just him hitting step back threes that he'd been missing in previous games. Like he was still two for eight from two point range. But uh, I, I do think like the two man game between him and Embiid, even when it's not Harden doing the scoring is just, it's a whole handful for the heat defense. And uh, it's just, it, it's a completely different Sixers offense now, obviously with, with Embiid back. So um, my, yeah, my, my feeling, and then we can, I guess, move on to talk about some other elements of this series. But I think, to me, it almost just comes down to if Lowry is just this, if they can't get more out of him, I don't know that Miami can win this series. Like, we're looking at a best of three from here on out. And the, the, the Heat need guys who can beat Philly's drop coverage or, like, get them out of a drop. And if Lowry can't do it, which he seemingly can't, because like you mentioned, he's not even really looking for his own offense right now, then it basically falls to Butler to like keep hitting mid-range jumpers and floaters or like getting all the way to the rim and finishing over Embiid or Hero, who had a quiet game three and four. I think that's asking a lot of those guys. And I don't know if if the Heat have the horses if if they don't have Lowry. They probably don't. And I think, see, that's a big thing too, is like Embiid's return coincided with Lowry's return, except for Philly, it was obviously monumentally positive. And for Miami, like I'm not going to say getting Lowry back has hurt them, but it kind of has. And here's the thing with Lowry. Sitting here in Toronto, we know all about Kyle Lowry's impact on a game. At his best, few others in the league, on the planet, impacted a game the way he did. I think the difference now is that, whereas back then, even if he had a terrible shooting night in the playoffs, which he had, you know, we know, even if he had a stretch in the playoffs, like he actually had during that 2019 run to the finals where he stopped looking for his own offense. He had a stretch like that against Philly and then kind of got over it. But the difference was then he was still doing so many other things to impact the game that obviously it would have been ideal if he was shooting more, looking for his own offense, his shot was falling, but you could still live with him out there. In this series, at this stage of his career, he is not doing those other things as consistently. Defensively, you mentioned he is not the low man he used to be in that cover. Like There are a lot of reasons why Lowry's individual offense or even like him looking for his shot going away now really hampers a team in ways that it didn't maybe even as recently as like last year or a couple of years ago. And so I think the fact that, you know, Embiid's return coincided with Lowry's return and the way Lowry has played has been tough for Miami. I mean, there were a couple times in that fourth quarter as Jimmy Butler was kind of trying to stage like mini comebacks and Philly would go up, whatever, eight to 10, but Butler would come back and hit a couple of shots. Maybe the Heat would hit a three. And you're thinking, okay, it's within range again. A couple of those times, the, the ball ended up in Lowry's hands. And it did seem like he actually had a chance to get 
hit a floater, maybe even get all the way to the rim and hit a layup. And he did not even look at the rim. He'd either dribble it back out or be looking to make a, a difficult pass in traffic that either ended up in heat turnovers or in a teammate taking a much tougher shot than the one it looked like he had. Like, th- they just can't survive like that, all things considered now in this series. And it's uh, like it's kind of tough to watch, man, and it's sad. And obviously, it's it's more so that he's just got this hamstring injury, and I hope that's all it is and not the fact that he, you know, he's just completely cooked. But it's, uh, yeah, the, the combination of those things not – ideal for Miami and the way things are going right now I mean yeah forget whether they can contend if Lowry's like this they're not going to be Philly if Lowry's like this and in beads in the lineup so they've got their work cut out for him you mentioned uh Harden yeah th- that's the one thing I wanted to know a lot of that kind of resurgence in that game was just the step back threes falling and I still am not seeing enough in terms of like beating guys off the dribble or getting into the paint to make me think oh the old Harden's back I st- his hamstring I still don't think is 100%. He may just never be that player again, I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see even shooting wise whether he can do that again because I had tweeted it after the game, but like it's literally been 2 months since Harden has had even back-to-back individual offensive games like that. So the fact that he, you know, isn't beating guys is going to make it tougher to have two games in a row like that, but I don't know, can can he shoot even <laughs> close to that well? for like multiple or consecutive games in a row now. Because if he can, plus everything else we're talking about, then the Heat are absolutely cooked. Yeah. I mean, I did think he looked a little bit more spry in that game. Like in spite of the two for eight mark inside the arc, he was still getting a step on guys and getting himself to the free throw line. And, you know, if he can even just a couple times a game, like beat Bam on a switch, that's a game changer, right? Because if Bam's out there, again, there's just like no rim protection behind him for the heat and I don't know I mean a question that I'll I'll pose to you that I'm a little bit curious about myself like are the heat over switching you know with Embiid back and now them knowing okay it's not like Paul Reed is the guy who's playing the other end of the pick and roll or DeAndre Jordan or you know George Niang or whoever is playing center in Embiid's absence like this is Joel Embiid and the heat are Basically, what they're doing is on the back end of that switch, they're fronting him with whoever switched onto him. And it's like Butler or PJ Tucker who's guarding Harden and then is switching on to Embiid and playing him with an aggressive front. And then there is the help coming from the weak side or the strong side, depending on, on which shooter is stationed where. They're bringing that help over on the back side and sandwiching Embiid and and trying to prevent him from either getting the ball because of the front or if he gets it then they're able to swarm him immediately on the catch that's opening them up to all kinds of second side action and skip passes to you know three-point shooters that Philly has done a really good job of converting in the last couple of games Um, and then you know Embiid on a lot of occasions is just able to beat the front on his own so I don't know. I mean, I I have to wonder if that's something that the Heat should maybe think about dialing back. Yeah, I, I, think I know that I know own. that Bam I know that Bam can switch out onto the perimeter onto pretty much anybody, but I feel like they use that as a crutch sometimes. I don't know if that's to their benefit or their detriment when Joel Embiid is on the other side. No, I think when Joel Embiid's on the other side, they are switching too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't and I don't think it's the first time that we've accused the Heat of doing such a thing, but I think. 
this is a Heat team that has played with enough different defensive coverages and Spolstra has drilled it into these guys enough where like, I don't think they need to be this rigid with switching everything with Joel Embiid in the game. Like that's a very different look as you were alluding to than a Philly team without Joel Embiid. You can play it differently depending on whether Embiid is on the court or involved in those actions or not. That would be my take on it. Yeah. Also, because we're talking about uh, switching on the perimeter, and I I don't even remember who it was against now. Was it Hero? Was it Oladipo? But that one possession in game four when Embiid got switched out on – was it Hero? Do you know which possession I'm talking about? And he got down, and but he was in such a crouch that he was – it looked like his head was at the level of like what an average guard would be, and he was defending on the perimeter, went into the paint to contain him. Whoever it was, whether it was Hero or Depot, I can't remember now, then brought it back out to the perimeter – Embiid shadowed him out there. Uh, it, that was like my favorite defensive possession of the game, and it got the crowd into it. Anyway, Embiid's just been a monster defensively. Yeah. I, I mean, the obvious one also is like at, like Adebayo, who was just utterly feasting in games one and two, did, suddenly doesn't really have a path to easy offense. Although they did get him going in the pick and roll in game four, I thought. I mean, Miami's offense in general was like way better in game four than it was in game three. But uh, their problem in game four was like they couldn't stop Philly. So obviously they need to find uh, a, a, an equilibrium there where they are able to score and they're also able to defend. Because I actually thought you know their defense in game three was fine, but they couldn't score at all. And then their offense sort of finally shook loose in game four, despite shooting like 20% from three. Because I think they shot like over 60% from two-point range. But then they couldn't stop Philly in that game. And I think... They just had some weirdly disconnected moments on defense that were pretty uncharacteristic for such a connected defense where it just, you know, it wasn't clear whether they were supposed to be switching or staying, whether they were supposed to be switching or hedging. And then you'd see two guys go to the same spot on the recovery. And they were doing weird stuff like, you know, I know Tobias Harris has been really good. But they were sending a lot of help on his post-ups. Like they, there was one possession where Jimmy Butler was guarding him in the post, and it was like a hard double team that left Maxi open above the break, and he hit a three off of the kickout from Harris. It's like, why? Like, really? You, you have to hard double Tobias Harris when Jimmy Butler is the guy guarding him? It was just, I don't know. I felt like they made a lot of uncharacteristic mistakes, and there's definitely some stuff that they can tighten up. But... Um, the the offensive end is the one that I'm going to be watching. I think the most closely to see if they can, if they can break through a little bit because, uh, like they'll shoot better from three, but I don't know if they can sustain that two point scoring, and I don't know if Jimmy Butler can keep doing this. So, yeah, probably uh, not. Yeah. Do you do you want to like throw out a prediction for game five or for the rest of the series? I can only go by what we're seeing right now and what it seems like these teams and players are at this stage in the season, their careers, whatever. And based on that, I would say Philly probably just wins the next two games. Which really is man, based on all the things we talked about, like like what would have to change? Embiid would have to either Embiid <laughs> would have to be ruled out for game five. Um, Kyle Lowry would have to, you know, maybe find the fountain of youth. I guess look, if the Heat if the Heat have a normal shooting night. We're probably talking about this coming back to Miami with the Heat at least having a chance to close this thing out. So maybe I'm swinging too far the other way now. And at the beginning of the series, I did pick Miami to win with the assumption, you know, Embiid's missing multiple games. So I don't know. It's just, it's hard for me to see all the things I think would need to go right for Miami now. 
for me to pick them to win two of three. But the shooting, mm. their shooting just regressing to the mean, you know, positively would fix a lot. Yeah, I think that in spite of everything I just talked about, I do think Miami is actually going to win game five. I think they'll, they'll bounce back. And, you know, Philly had two really, really good three-point shooting games at home. I think that will probably see some pull down. I think this is going seven. You know who's and really happy about that? It's Milwaukee just like a and Boston. <laughs> well, that, that series is probably going seven as well. No, I know. But for a while, it looked like that series was going to be a slugfest and Miami might coast and get a week right. off. So I think Bucks and yeah. Celtics, very happy. Um, I actually can't, I can't call this one. I mean, I picked Miami and seven before, before I knew that Embiid was going to miss, you know, X amount of time in the series. So I guess I'll just stick with that prediction. That'll be the tiebreaker, but I think it's going seven and it's just a total toss up. I think from there. Um, okay. The other series going tonight is Phoenix Dallas. Another series that was two Oh, and I actually think this was the much more surprising development. Like if you told me like Embiid's going to be back for games three and four, which of these series is more likely to be going to game five tied to all, I would have said much more likely to be Philly Miami. And nevertheless, you know, after, after looking like they had no real answers for Phoenix's offense in games one and two, the Mavs come through and uh, they managed to level up the series with, you know, a terrific defensive performance, I thought, in game three, and then a pretty excellent offensive performance in game four. I think a lot of, you know, the, the Phoenix offensive regression does sort of come down to their mid-range shooting, where they were up over like 60% in the first two games and then down in like the 30s uh, in games three and four combined. So that was probably inevitable. I mean, they weren't going to shoot that well from mid-range for the entire series, but I also don't think they're going to shoot as poorly from mid-range as they did in games three and four. It'll probably wind up somewhere in the middle. So, I mean, look, I still think Phoenix is the better team. I still give them the edge in this series, but, you know, being tied to all in a series with Luka Doncic on the other side is not a particularly comfortable place to be. So I'll ask you the same question that I asked about the Philly Miami series. I mean, what has stood out to you most in terms of how Dallas has managed to turn this thing around? Well, you know, I don't want to be all negative here and and say that it's, (laughs) but if I'm honestly answering your question about what is to know for me the most, Chris Paul in games three and four Mm. was not the same Chris Paul that played in games one and two. And, he almost it, looked uh, like a 37-year-old undersized point guard. Right. No, exactly, right? Like, he looked like what a guy of his physical stature and at this age should look like. It's just we're so used to Chris Paul not looking like that and, you know, just having an another brilliant season. And for the most part in the playoffs, he's had a couple stingers but has been brilliant. Like, he was coming – was it game one or game two when he had that uh, – game one, I think he was perfect. But either way, like, he was awesome in the first two games – so even, okay, game three happens. I think that was his 37th birthday. Everyone was joking around, you know, he had the terrible birthday game. And you're thinking, based on the way the playoffs have gone, this season has gone, you can't really think about his age and stuff. You just have to look at the most recent sample sizes of a season and think the game three should have been the outlier, right? He comes back game four. He should look like Chris Paul again. And it'll be fine. And that didn't happen. And so that was a little jarring to me 
But it was also like, if, if you're asking me the biggest difference, I think that was it. Look, Dallas hitting threes at the rate they started hitting them, given that they are going all in on the math battle I talked about coming into the series. Obviously, that's huge. Um, defensively, I think, you know, you, you mentioned it. Like, they're they're okay trading the threes for the twos, obviously. And it helps when Phoenix is usually amazing mid-range shooting crashes back down to earth the way it did in games three and four. So I don't want to put this on Chris Paul. Obviously, there are other basketball and schematic reasons why this is going the way it's gone. But Chris Paul not being as excellent as he usually is, is going to be a, there's going to be a difference there between a Phoenix team that ran roughshod over the league for the most part in the regular season and looked like the NBA championship favorite as they deserved to be. And a team that is much more in line with a Dallas, you know, where it is actually a very competitive series. And you are worried about the sample size now shrinking in a series where you're going against Luka Doncic. So if Chris Paul gets back to being Chris Paul, I think the Suns are not just the better team, the vastly superior team. And I think they should win the next two games. Chris Paul's not that guy. This thing's a series. And yeah, I mean, this is something I talked about in the Pelican series. It was a little different because I also thought Booker was still going to be out. But it's just... The, the smaller the sample size of remaining games gets, the more likely it is that you can be undone by random shit. And, it, it you know, what's supposed to happen might not happen because it's it's one game instead of seven or it's three games instead of seven. And to your point, when that one or three games is against Luka Doncic on the other side, I don't care what team you are. Like, the, the Mavs now have a shot because Doncic is that good. And even though the efficiency hasn't necessarily been there because Phoenix defense is that good, like, the fact that he's still even able to do what he's done is is just remarkable. Like I, when I ranted earlier in the season about how I think the Mavs have failed him in a way of not getting him enough help, one of the th- jokes I made was like, "You can't expect Luka Doncic to turn water into wine every night." Well, God damn it, if he's not trying, because th- th- between him and the defense, again, it's not all on him. The, the Mavs have been just excellent defensively all season. Uh, kid has. I've got them playing defense and believing and guys like Jalen Brunson have stepped up. I don't want to take away from any of that, but what Luka Doncic has done to drag this team at times, when you do look at the supporting cast is really, really remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I think that supporting cast deserves a lot of credit for sure. Uh, You know, for one thing, you mentioned the three point shooting. They were 20 for 44 from deep in game four. And that was with Luka being one for 10. And we saw all kinds of guys, contributing to that whether it was you know Finney Smith who hit what like eight threes in that game yeah uh Bertans like coming in and finally making an impact Bertans shooting has come back uh somewhat in Dallas do you remember when they traded for him at the deadline and we were joking around because the Mavs had had the first half of the season they had this terrible shooting luck where like good yeah. shooters weren't shooting well and then they traded for a guy who historically was a great shooter but was having the worst shooting season of his career and it's like they kind of went all in on like good shooters that have to regress to the mean positively. And it's kind of works out for them. I mean, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're getting hot at the right time, I think we can say. But so like a bunch of things have changed. Some of them are uh, specific adjustments from Dallas, I would say. And some of them are just certain guys playing better. Like the the biggest example of the latter is just Jalen Brunson and like how important I think he has been to getting Dallas back in this series because he was pretty rough in games one and two and I think he finally got going I mean he really got going in game three and then was not quite as good in game four but was still effective and still contributing um I just think he's been 
a little bit more decisive as an attacker. I think the Mavs have made more of an effort to get him involved, like running more second side pick and roll for him. And I think, you know, he's hit some shots against Phoenix's drop coverage. They've gotten pretty creative using him as a screener. Like he got a couple pretty clean three point looks like popping out after setting like a hammer screen in the corner, which I thought was cool to see. And if he's had any matchup other than Booker, and I think he's been better actually just attacking Booker in isolation as well. Um, Like there was one drive he had where he just like put his shoulder into Booker and sent him into the stanchion. But then like, it's really like he's doing more of his damage. I feel like when he gets anybody else on him, like whether they screen Booker off or like Booker's off the floor and he sees, you know, Landry Shamit or campaign. I mean, he he's just roasting those guys. So him getting back in the series as a key contributor has been huge. Maxi Kleba has been monumental at both ends. And I feel like one of the key adjustments Dallas has made is Powell's sort of not playing anymore. He played nine minutes in game four. Like they're really rolling with Kleba at center uh, with a little bit of Finney Smith at center sprinkled in. But really it's Kleba, I think, who at both ends of the floor, like whether he's stretching it out on offense or making some really smart 45 cuts where, I mean, sometimes it's with the Suns straight up playing zone. Sometimes it's just them showing two bodies to Luca at the top. But I think Kleba has been really good about exploiting that and finding the pockets of space in the middle. So his ability to both do that and hit those key catch and shoot threes and space it out for Dallas's offense has been huge. And then defensively, I think they can use him in a variety of ways. Like he's shown he can be a rim protector, but he can also really be a switch guy. And I think that is taking Phoenix out of their flow a little bit. And then the other big one is like them after Chris Paul absolutely toasted him in game two, some combination of Dallas protecting Luca a little bit better and Luca protecting himself a little bit better and just straight up working harder defensively. Especially Jason with Kidd called him out on that, by the way, going into game three. Yeah, yeah. He he need I think he said he needs to stand up for himself and play defense. Like And he answered the bell, man. I think yeah. in terms of you know staying out of bad switches in the first place with some really solid show and recover work. And and I this is a credit to Dallas's defense because I think they've rotated really well behind that. But I also think like usually the Suns are so good at punishing teams for putting two on the ball. And I just don't think they've been quite as good in these last couple of games. And they've they've allowed the Mavs to get away with doing that and to let Luka show and recover and stay out of those switches without doing enough damage, I don't think, on the backside. And their their offense has lost a bit of the zip, even though I do feel like a lot of it comes down to them just not making their mid-rangers. I feel like a lot of time they're, they're like not moving quick enough to attack pockets of space. Aiton, I don't think, has been nearly good enough. Like He's a guy who, if they are going to punish Dallas for putting two on the ball, like he needs to be a big part of that. And I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like Phoenix, like Phoenix's offense is usually at its best when they're pinging the ball around, like getting it to the second side because a team has felt they have no choice but to put two on the ball. But in these last couple of games, it's like, I mean, they're still more or less playing Chris Paul straight up, you know, like doing like whether it's a switch or, or a shallow drop that turns into a late switch, but they're like 
mixing in a lot of blitzes on Booker. And I don't think the Suns have done enough to punish that. I think they're plenty capable of punishing it. So I don't know that that's going to be something that sustains. But for now, I feel like Dallas is getting away with it. And again, credit to them because they're connected and they're rotating really well on the backside. So um, apart from just Luca being brilliant, uh, I think the other guys have stepped up. The defense has stepped up. And and, and with Luca, I think they found a, a good offensive counter, which was playing him more out of the post. Because we saw in those first couple of games, like, yeah, he was getting his points, but the Suns were kind of okay playing his pick and rolls two on two and limiting him as a playmaker. Now the Mavs are like trying to find him a mismatch that he likes, getting him in the post, and that's drawing two to the ball pretty consistently. And that's helping get other guys going with clean catch and shoot looks. So I thought that was a nice counter from Dallas and... Again, it's like the variety with Luca, the number of different ways that yeah. he can hurt you is what is what makes him so incredible. Okay, so same question you posed to me but about the, uh, about Philly Miami, um mm-hmm. but I'll post this to you. Actually, though I I did want to mention um a, f- a funny tweet I'd seen when Chris Paul was having the game he had. It was a uh, friend of the show Srikar at Sreaky Shooter, <clears throat> Sun Superfan, who tweeted that he thinks it seems like James Harden and Chris Paul's powers are like inversely related ever since they broke up, which I thought was it was fun. It made me chuckle. Anyway, back to what I was saying. I'll pose the same question you posed to me about Heat Sixers, but about Suns Mavs. Mm-hmm. Where where do you think this series goes? Seven. Yeah, no, I think chalk the rest of the way. Like home team wow. wins. So every you think game. the Mavs are you think the Mavs are pushing this to the limit? I do. Yeah, I think they've they've shown <sighs> that they can even the games they lost with. with Phoenix absolutely lighting them up. Dallas is kind of keeping pace. And I feel like, yeah, they'll they'll lose game five. They'll come home. They'll level it up. And then I think the Suns close them out. But yeah, I think it's I think it's going down to the wire. You think Phoenix closing out in six? Yes. I think Phoenix wins big at home in game five and then wins a really, really competitive nail biting game six in Dallas. So mm-hmm. I think I still think Phoenix in six. I'll say this. If this gets to game seven, Doncic is gonna do it. If this gets to game seven, I am scared shitless if I'm Phoenix. I think like that's this, interesting this... because I feel like a game seven, yeah, there's this notion that in a game seven, you you lean toward the team with just the best player. It's not... But also, I kind of lean toward the team that is more balanced and isn't relying so heavily on one guy that. who's probably going to run out of gas, who we've seen run out of gas yes. at the end of games in this series. Like in a seventh game, I mean, I don't know, I man. Don't know. The, here, the thing too that's scary if you're playing Dallas and it comes to that is one, they've got the best player on the court, and they are a shooting reliant team. That look, c- could it go the other way as it's gone for them at times this season? And the players, sure, and you end up just drilling them because they go like <clears throat> six of thirty from three. But Luca plus three point variance in a single game elimination would just scare the hell out of me and I, th- I think phoenix is gonna do it i don't think dallas gets into the game but if they if they find a way to get this to a one game winner take all give me luka Doncic. so so we're basically disagreeing twice here because you're saying it's not going to get to seven which i'm saying it will yeah. and i'm also taking the suns to win that game seven but you're saying it's either it's either suns and six or mavs and seven but under no circumstances will the suns win in seven <laughs> That's that's your take. 
Yeah, I guess. Sure. <laughs> when, you, when you put it like that, it seems rather silly, but this is what people come to pound the rock for. Indeed. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll close this out with a, a more abridged breakdown of the other two series. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash. Celtics, Bucks, 2 2, Warriors, Grizzlies, 3 1, Golden State. Uh, again, we have talked about these series at length already, which is why we're going to go a little bit quicker here. But why don't we just go uh, Golden State, Memphis quickly to get it out of the way? Because. Unfortunately, I just don't think it is as interesting anymore. Like, I, I think it was interesting that the Grizzlies, who were 20 and 5 without John Morant this season, really pushed the Warriors to the limit in that game four and certainly looked for a while like they were going to be able to level it up. And then from there, I mean, I don't know. We haven't really gotten a, an official update on the severity of that knee injury for Morant. So, seemed like maybe it was going to be in play for him to be back in a potential game five if the series was tied to all. I mean, maybe he'll still be back, but I think at this point, I don't think the Grizzlies can win three straight in spite of how well they've been able to play without him. But anything that caught your eye in that game four, anything you're looking forward to or going to be paying particularly close attention to for the rest of this series, what's What's on your I mind? I mean, I think the rest of this series is one game. Um, I Look, I think the Grizzlies deserve all the credit in the world for how resilient they have been and were once again. Like, they led that game long enough to the point where I believed. You know, like, the whole game, I was yeah. like... The they Warriors, led, like, almost wire to wire yes, until... for, like, 47 minutes, almost 47 minutes, yeah. yeah. And it even me watching it thought, Nah, the Warriors will pull away. The Warriors will catch them and then pull away. And then they led for long enough and seemed in control of that game for long enough that I really did start to believe, man, they might just do this. Like, they're they're going to do it again without Ja. And to lose the way they did, like, that's just going to be the most heartbreaking, not even heartbreaking, but just like gut-punching. You know, it's not like they lost on a buzzer beater, but to to lead the way they did all game to the point where you have to start believing and thinking, we're bringing this thing, we could bring things back to Memphis 2-2 and instead... You know, now having to play for your lives three straight games against the Warriors, maybe without Jaw, backbreaking. Dylan Brooks's performance <laughs> offensively, also backbreaking. Nine points on 22 possessions until he hit that last three at the buzzer, which was inconsequential. So 12 points on 23 possessions, and it was worse than that. Some of the actual shots he pulled the trigger on that last or the second last three he took with a, a little over a minute left, and I think they were still up by one, and it was that early shot, like just ridiculous. Um, no surprise with him. Obviously, we know he's always been like that. Uh, on the up, uh, to be fair, on the other side, I thought Clay had like some really bad moments too, and his decision making wasn't great. And it kind of speaks to what we spoke to last episode with Clay, where like, okay, the shooting has come and gone in his return, but it's that 
It's the mobility, some of the defense, some of the stuff he's doing when he's not catching and shooting where it's been really concerning. And I think that is something to watch going forward. Like, okay, they, they'll get through Memphis, but I, I think they might need a little more from Clay, not to win this series, but if we're talking about them, you know, winning a title again. Um, so the few things I'm watching there. And then also just, you know, something I've talked about all series because it was what I talked about going into the series, but the Warriors making like neutralizing Memphis's size advantage and not allowing a Memphis team that feasted on the offensive glass all season to do that. The, the Warriors have just been so good game plan wise and just discipline wise of cleaning the defensive glass and making sure the Grizzlies do not beat them there. I think Andrew Wiggins has been really good on the boards in this series as a small ball four. Um, so th- those are the, the things that are standing out to me right now. And the things I guess I'll watch for as long as this series continues to play out, but I don't think it's much longer. I thought Otto Porter really saved them in that game four. Like when they were really scuffling, couldn't score. Memphis had a pretty nice cushion in the fourth quarter. Otto Porter came in and hit some massive threes off of just really canny off ball movement. And yeah, look, I don't, first of all, it was nice to see Steven Adams back in the rotation. Maybe it was by necessity because Morant wasn't there and they had to put somebody else back in the starting lineup. But I thought Adams was awesome. Like he, he held up at the defensive end. It was nice for the Grizzlies to have that added paint presence on defense because they had been getting shredded by the Warriors at the rim for basically the entire series. And this game, things finally sort of flipped back, I guess, in the direction that we expected, where Memphis was getting more in the paint on offense and Golden State was getting less. Um, Both teams shot the ball terribly from three-point range. I think combined, they they were two for their first 30 in what was a pretty ugly first half. But I don't think it's surprising at all, especially because we've seen it all season, that the Grizzlies were way better defensively without jaw. Like, you know, taking away one of, you know, taking away the easiest guy for the Warriors to pick on. And like we've said before, it's not just about the on-ball breakdowns. It's really a lot about the off-ball stuff with jaw, where he's gambling, he's blowing rotations, he's getting lost. And that just wasn't happening for Memphis at all in this game. I mean, their rotations were unbelievable. Like the the stuff that they were taking away from Golden State and getting those possessions reset. I do think the Warriors kind of record scratched their way out of some threes that they should have taken. But man, the Grizzlies were on point defensively. And it's just a shame. But again, not totally unexpected that they couldn't find enough offense down the stretch to get over the finish line. I, I think even without jaw, I wouldn't be shocked if they won game five. game five. Yeah. You know, can they, can they get that same kind of performance out of Steven Adams? Can they get that same kind of performance out of Kyle Anderson yeah. who was pretty tremendous in that game? I mean, I don't know, but um, I think they're fully capable of at least pushing this to a sixth game. Like I, you know, like I said, I don't think they can win it, but uh, this is a team that, that plays with a whole lot of heart and that we've seen time and again. They can win without jaw. They can really defend without jaw. And it'll just be a question of whether they can score enough to make that hold up. Dylan Brooks, by the way, has taken 35 shots in 72 minutes of action in this series. How many do you think he's made? 14? Eight. Eight for 35. Eight for 35 in Yikes. 72 minutes of action. Yeah. Uh, I love Dylan Brooks, so so do you, I. Look, you will not I, hear me speak a slanderous word I, about him. 
I like watching and I think it says something that like his teammates clearly like appreciate all the things he does on the court and and the spirit and the fight he's got that they you don't rebel against this shot selection but you know the fact that we are both admirers of his that fight doesn't change the fact that his shot selection and shooting performance has been backbreaking for them in this series. Yeah, look, that's it, it's like we always say the Dylan Brooks experience, right? You've got to take the good with the bad. And in a game like that, where frankly, the Grizzlies did not have a ton of shot creation, they didn't have enough guys who were willing to take shots. You kind of, I mean, look, there were some shots that Dylan Brooks should not have taken in that game, but you need somebody in that situation who's willing to take the shots. Yeah, and that is something I talk about it all the time. Th- that is something I don't care. I, I don't care if he's missing them. And if you hate his shot selection, and if you think he, he shot the Grizzlies out of that game, they need guys in that situation who are unafraid to take the shots. And especially with, you know, it was a real shame that Bane just can't be Bane right now. Yeah. Because man, did they, did they need him in that game? And he just, he, he did his best. Uh, and I think actually he was like a plus eight in his minutes on the court, but um, he, he just couldn't be there for them in the way that they really needed him to be, which is why I think you saw so much of the offense falling to Dylan Brooks and Tyus Jones. And I thought, I thought Jones for the most part had a really good game too. You know, I'm a big fan of his, yeah. but it's like, like he just can't get all the way to the basket. Like you're really relying on him to, to hit jumpers and floaters. And he did that for a bit, but then cooled off down the stretch and, um, yeah, it, it just would have really been nice to have peak Desmond Bain there because I think they would have won the game if they'd had him. Um, let's close this out here, man. Celtics Bucks 2 2. Yeah, bef- before, uh, before we get to that, actually, I did just want to mention some in episode breaking news. Uh, Kyle Lowry out for game five. Yeah, not a shock. Uh, yeah. th- I think they've said that he had tweaked the hamstring actually at some point in yeah. the game four, which. Uh, I think given the state that Lowry was in, that's not a bad thing for no, Miami for no, him to be ruled out, but obviously a bad thing for them that uh, they they haven't had the optimized version of him at any point in this series. So um, we'll see if they can make it work with you know other guys stepping up and taking those on-ball reps. I mean, more Jimmy, a lot more hero. Can they score enough? That's, that's the big question to me still. Uh, okay, Celtics-Bucks, 2-2 defensive battle every single night uh, bodies bodies everywhere every game <laughs> but i will say i think this series is like the right kind of physical it's not dirty the even plays that you know look dangerous or hazardous it, it's just like their hustle plays like i've i've loved this series it hasn't always been the prettiest basketball but it like the competitive nature of it and the type of physicality i think is really really good yeah, I feel like this is what people talk about when they talk about like good old fashioned smash mouth Eastern Conference playoff basketball. Yeah. It's uh, it's been about the defense, and I, I was gonna say, okay, I'll, I'll put it to you like I had with all the other series and ask you what's one thing that has stood out. I I, I think we got to start by talking about Al Horford, dude. My first <laughs> note, the first note I had, even though I knew it wasn't gonna be the first thing we talked about today. The first note on my notes for this episode was Al Horford WTF because I joked last night on Twitter, but like even that dunk he threw down on Giannis, you can't even say that was Al Horford turning back the clock because even young Al Horford, I would have been shocked 
at that kind of explosiveness. Like that was never really Horford's game. The whatever he summoned inside of him after he got dunked on by Giannis, and he even admitted that after the game that like after he got dunked on by Giannis, and I think the way Giannis was looking at him after it kind of it kind of almost inspired him in a way to be like, all right, like you got to put up more of a fight than this. And whatever he summoned in himself after getting baptized by Giannis on one end was he pulled a rabbit out of a hat and found not just the fountain of youth, but a version of Al Horford that we haven't really ever seen before. Cause even Al Horford at his best, and he was a great player for a very long time was never that kind of like individual offensive threat was never that kind of an explosive player. So to see him do it now in his mid thirties as a, what is he? 15 year vet like was hilarious, but also awesome. And, you know, Tatum's shot making down the stretch, obviously carried Boston home too, but like they're not in that game for Tatum to carry them home. If it's not for what Al Horford did in that second half. So, uh, just a gobsmacking, shocking game performance from Al Horford. Kudos to him and the Celtics. I thought the Bucks shot themselves in the foot with their own offensive process, uh, in that second half, true holiday, who we've praised defensively, who was was giving them just enough offensively, I thought, throughout the playoffs so far, um, was pretty terrible in that game offensively. And I think it wasn't just him, his offense drying up is one thing, but the decision-making and the shot selection from him was really bad down the stretch. Like He had a couple plays in that fourth quarter as the Bucks were losing grip of the rope where he did not help them. Like That's when you want, all right, your veteran floor general to get you a good possession, whether that's in his own hands or someone else's. And instead he was like rushing these weird drives that were really contested and ending with awkward attempts. So uh, bad bucks, good Al Horford and good Tatum and good Celtics, really physical game. Celtics end up pulling it out. Also two, two going back to Boston. Now, I don't know. What what did you think? Yeah, I think Al Horford has been no exaggeration. One of the 15 best players in the NBA this postseason. He's been insane. And and like I texted you last night, uh, by far the best trade that any team made yeah. this season was the Celtics trading Kemba Walker for Al Horford. And to, to think, you know, going back to whenever that trade happened in July, I think. June, I think they said. Yeah. June. Imagine going back there and saying, look, James Harden is going to get traded this season. CJ McCollum is going to get traded this season. Kristaps Porzingis is going to get traded this season. The best trade that any team is going to make, and it won't be close, is going to be this one. When the Celtics get Al Horford back in exchange for Kemba Walker. He's been great all postseason. He's been great this series, guarding Giannis. Uh, I thought he was instrumental in their defensive coverage against Kevin Durant in round one. We haven't seen him pop off offensively like this. But the the Bucks have been giving him all he can eat behind the three-point line. Like, that is what their coverage is designed to give up like it's designed to give up exactly those types of above the break pick and pop threes to players exactly like al horford and horford was up to it in this game i mean i I thought the celtics were smart about the way they got him those looks like it was a lot of empty side pick and roll and pick and pop and he was hitting a bunch of short roll jumpers, but obviously, you know, a ton of threes. He was uh, all told, I think he was six for seven from two point range and five for seven from deep, 11 for 14 from the field overall. And basically, it was like over and over again, whoever was handling the ball, it was usually Tatum or Smart. 
they would drive, two guys would go with them, Horford would pop into the empty side, and he'd be wide open above the break. The dunk you're talking about on Giannis was an empty side pick and pop where he got a hard closeout from Giannis, put the ball on the floor, drove past him, dunked, plus the foul. And on that play, like you can see, running that on the empty side, they've got Grayson Allen as the low man in the weak side corner. I can't remember who it was that he was guarding. Maybe it was Peyton Pritchard. They made a point of sticking him in the weak side corner. So when they ran that pick and pop, knowing Horford was maybe going to have a chance to attack a closeout, the only guy who was left to stop him was going to be Grayson Allen. And Grayson Allen, maybe somewhat predictably, was very late coming over with that help. Giannis did his best to get back into the play, but couldn't prevent the dunk and wound up committing the foul. I just thought, for the most part, the Celtics were pretty smart about the way they ran their offense. I think this was probably their best offensive game of the series, maybe game two, but after a game that they lost because they couldn't score, you know, really because Tatum shot four for 19 and 0 for six from deep and, and he got going in this game. But for, for Horford to do that while guarding Giannis more or less in single coverage for the bulk of the game without Rob Williams there providing that help behind him, you know, if Giannis was going to drive past him, uh, just incredible. And I also think it was interesting how the Celtics offense did open up with Horford being the lone big man on the floor because usually they they run two bigs together, him and Rob Williams, and that makes them suffocating defensively. But they were able to survive defensively and open up their offense, I think, by going with just the one big. And I'm interested to see if or when Rob Williams is ready to come back, whether they make more of an effort to continue to play one big on the floor to make things a little bit easier for their offense, even if it means sacrificing something at the defensive end. Yeah, I also have been not surprised, but it's still been somewhat jarring to see just like the level to which the the Celtics are making Giannis work. Like he's working, working, man, and he's putting up big numbers, but it is very inefficient and he looks gassed and understandably so. Like late in that fourth quarter, of game four, I think with like five or six minutes left in a one possession game, he asked out and needed like a minute breather. It was only, I think it worked out to like three or four possessions, um, like one or two on each side. So it wasn't that big of a stretch of the game or anything like that. But still, to get to a point where Giannis needed to ask out and get even that, whatever it was, 45 second, a minute breather in a one possession game in a game four of an East semifinal series tells you how much the Celtics are making him work and how gassed he is right now. Yeah, and I do think like the Bucks have been a little bit better in terms of some of the stuff we talked about last episode, like how they could make his life easier, setting those free throw line screens with smalls to get him, you know, attacking downhill where it's really hard for the Celtics to go under those screens. They have to give the switch a lot of the time. He's been really successful attacking Jalen Brown, I think, specifically on switches. And you know, running more pick and roll with him as the screener. And I think, you know, really the the issue in this game was that on the front end of those pick and rolls, Drew just wasn't good enough. Like you mentioned it, he was he was five for 22 from the field. He missed 10 of his last 11 shots. Not all of it was bad process. Like I think he had some strong takes and just duffed a bunch of easy finishes at the rim. He got some pretty clean catch and shoot threes that he missed. But I think we're really seeing the limitations 
of having Holiday as your lead ball handler. And especially on those drives, like he's just not a great drive and kick playmaker, I don't think. He really tends to just put his head down and barrel toward the rim. And that can work when he's operating with the significant strength advantage. I just don't feel like against these Celtics defenders, that's very often the case. And his inability to like turn those drives into kickouts or into swing swing sequences, I think has really hurt the Bucks offense, you know, along with the fact that I don't think he's done a very good job of getting the ball to his big after the Celtics are switching the pick and roll. You know, like he is really just trying to attack the front end either with pull up jump shots or drives. And meanwhile, on the backside, it's like you got Giannis or Brooke Lopez or Bobby Portis with the size advantage and he's not making much of an effort I don't think to get those guys the ball and that's allowing the Bucks to stay pretty comfortable switching those pick and rolls when Holiday is the ball handler which means that in order to like effectively attack those switches the Bucks have to just run I think the pick and rolls with Giannis as the ball handler which I feel like leads to a lot of the exhaustion that you're talking about so yeah. No doubt about it, they need Holiday to be better. But again, it's just like Middleton's not there, man. And it's it he's overtaxed in this role. Yeah. Like this is not, he's not that guy. He's a wonderful player, but he is not a lead ball handler. He just isn't. And that's what I was going to say too. Like if you remember last year on their way to winning the championship, Drew Holiday had plenty of these games in that playoff run. The difference was that, and Chris Middleton had some of these games too, but the difference was that one of them would usually have a good, like one of them was usually off in that run, but one of them would be on. So if Holiday had a game like this, Middleton would hit some shots or do what he does offensively from his areas to kind of negate it or at least make up for some of it. And, you know, if Middleton had an off game, Holiday would maybe find his rhythm, but it was also easier for him to do that with Middleton in the lineup. Now, when, when Holiday has these games and Middleton's not there, they're just... They're broken, man. Then you're really expecting too much out of even Giannis. Right. And then it's also like you think about you don't really want to play many, if any, minutes with Holiday and Giannis both on the bench. So then you're asking Drew to like carry some of these lineups without Giannis. And that just makes it that much more difficult for him to create against this devastating Boston defense. So. Yeah, it's like from the start, I've been saying it's going to be an uphill climb for this Bucks offense. I think we've seen a lot of that. I think we've also seen them, you know, like make some adjustments to improve the situation, but it's just going to continue to be a grind for them. And, you know, I thought in terms of Boston's offense improving, what they got back to in game four that I thought they, sh- they really needed to go to more often in game three was the... Tatum smart two-man game whether like either one of them handling the ball with the other one screening because that was able to get Tatum like favorable switches against guys like you know Grayson Allen and George Hill or you know it was able to put two on the ball and one of those guys is flaring out or attacking off of the catch like I thought that that's been way more fruitful for them for them than running like the conventional pick and roll with a big man if you're involving Brook or Giannis because those guys are just going to do their thing where they're dropping back and not letting you get anything in the paint so I think more of that from Boston's offense will continue to be beneficial and again I, I just expect them to continue to be able to defend the Bucks really well so it's just a question of 
can they score enough to get over the finish line? And they've been able to do it twice and two other times haven't been able to do it. But I, I'm still feeling good about my Celtics pick in this series. But I also think this one's going the distance. So I guess I'm I'm picking three of these series to go to seven games, which if it actually happens, will be pretty crazy. But uh, I like the Celtics to finish this off. How about you? I, I'm i going Bucks in seven. The, the same logic as your Dallas pick? Like, gets to a game seven, you roll with Giannis? Yeah. But this one, this one to me is like much more of a toss up because the Dallas one was more so, like I said, I, I, I still think Phoenix is the much better team and I would, I'm picking Phoenix in six as my actual prediction. This one is so much more of a toss up to me that I actually think the whole like best player in the series thing has a, has a greater chance of being the deciding factor, but mm. th- like flip a coin for this. Like I, I would not be surprised by any result over the next three games. I think these two teams, especially with O Middleton are that evenly matched and the Celtics are more than capable of doing it. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we are not going to get to follow up on these predictions, at least not right away, because this is our only episode this week, Cash. You have a birthday coming up. Is it on Wednesday? Yes, it is on Wednesday. Now, that's not why I'm taking the time off. I'm not taking not taking five days off for my birthday. But yes, I do have a birthday Listen, coming up. Listen, man, you'd be well within your rights to do so. I... Hope that our listeners will, uh, you know, reach out, wish Cash a happy birthday, and blame him for the lack of a second episode this week. But no, uh, well-deserved time off, and uh, we will reconvene early next week with, at that point, I think we'll have all of our matchups set for the conference finals, right? Like, yep. So that'll be fun to, to catch up and look back and look ahead at the same time. But in the meantime, we're going to leave you with this kind of mid-series check-in on a bunch of really compelling conference semifinals. So with that, I'm going to throw it over to you, Cash, for a fan shout-out. Fan shout-out this week goes to Anton Labounets, who reached out on Instagram via DM. Says he's been listening since the LeBron traded, or sorry, LeBron signs with Lakers episode. That was like one of our first episodes, uh, Jesus, almost four years ago now. Um, he is a, uh, fan from Vancouver and then moved to Seattle. So he did talk about the fact that he, the Pacific Northwest, not having any teams. And, uh, he, he was hoping that when the off season comes and we don't have a lot to talk about, we could maybe talk about why the Pacific Northwest deserves teams and as an expansion ep- or expansion slash relocation episode. I mean, we're probably not going to do that, but I can tell you that I think both of us are in favor of the Pacific Northwest and Seattle, especially getting, a team back. Um, Anton said that his show is actually what got him into podcasts in general. And, and, you know, he's now the, the kind of guy that gets stuff done while listening to pods. So he doesn't have much time to watch games these days beyond highlights, but listening to pound the rock keeps him feeling up to date. Well, Anton, uh, we appreciate you more than, you know, so thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for reaching out and the usual call out to all of our listeners out there who have not, received a shout out before we want to shower you with some praise for keeping us going here on pound the rock because your support is why we are able to continue to do this so hit us up on twitter at joey underscore double y-o-u at joseph cacharo email joe.wolfon at the score.com joseph.cacharo at the score.com find me on instagram like anton did joe underscore 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 cash and uh, let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. And uh, I promise we'll get you a shout out on a future episode. 
There it is. Thank you, Anton. Thank you to all our listeners for sticking with us for however long you've been listening, whether this is your first episode or your 241st. We appreciate you. We're putting a bow on this, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. Thank you.